You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series on the Old Testament prophet Elijah that Howard Hendricks presented at Founders Week 1968. Howard Hendricks was a popular pastor, author, conference speaker, and longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, here is Howard Hendricks on Today in the Word radio. Turn in our Father's Word to 1 Kings chapter 18. We want to view this morning Elijah in conflict. God's method invariably involves a man. Indeed, it is his favorite method. But what kind of a man does God choose and use? God's choice of materials is diametrically opposed to man's. Man chooses an individual on the basis of what he is. God chooses an individual on the basis of what he is to become. I suppose there is no more dramatic scene in all of the scriptures than the contest on Carmel. I wish I were an artist and could render the scene. Two explosive personalities collide, and the moment they do, the sparks fly. Ahab says to Elijah, Are you the one who's troubling Israel? More literally translated from the original text, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah is equal to the occasion. He said, No. Like Nathan the prophet, he points his finger and says, Thou! art the man. He scores him for his sin, and in so doing, he throws down the gauntlet. There is no question in my mind who is in charge here. In fact, seven times over, Elijah takes the initiative. He issues the command. He issues the initial command. The battle of the gods. It was a national holiday in Israel. I can see them now streaming up to the top of that mountain with its commanding view of the Mediterranean Sea. They're coming up by every available route. The battle of the gods, 15 rounds, winner take all. And it's a scene in contrast. By far the overwhelming majority are gathered over on this side. 850 prophets of Baal and the prophets of the grove, clad in their expensively robed garments, beautifully colored, 
around their neck a piece of metal deliberately designed to catch the rays of the sun and reflect it, for they worship the sun. Soon that group parts for the grand entry of the king. He's borne by his retinue of servants on a litter. He is resplendently robed as well with all of his regal garments. And then your eye shifts, and there's a long, gaunt man crudely clothed, coarse in appearance, hair disheveled, eyes like steel. Someone says, isn't it a shame? He's so lonely. My friends, don't feel sorry for Elijah because Elijah does not feel sorry for himself. Will you mark in your Bible, at least will you underline in your mind, the seven statements which unfold the story? It's a familiar story, but I think through this route we can get it before us that we might derive the practical lessons which emerge from this freighted portion of God's Word. His first statement is in verse 21. He begins by preaching a sermon. It's a short, clear, concise sermon. How long are you continuing to hop or halt between two opinions? He scores them with the sin of indecisiveness. They're at the fork. He says, you're going to have to make a decision. Elijah would have had no sympathy with the politician who, when asked, are you for or against this issue, replied, well, some of my friends are for it, and some of my friends are against it, and I'm for my friends. He was concerned that the people do not emerge from this contest with both feet firmly planted in midair. He said, you're going to have to make a choice. And you've been straddling the fence. And there is no room for peaceful coexistence. It's either Jehovah or Baal. Make your choice. And in so saying, he stunned them into absolute silence. But he speaks again. In verse 22, he first of all underscores the problem, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord. And then he makes a proposal. Verse 24, call ye upon the name of your gods, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. And the God that answers by fire, let him be God. May I remind you that Baal was the chief deity in the Canaanite pantheon. He was the Lord of heaven. 
And whenever it would thunder, whenever they would see lightning flash across the sky, they would exclaim, that's Baal, that's Baal. He was the Lord of fire. Well, my friends, if there is anything a god of fire ought to be able to do, it's light a fire. And that's exactly why the people answered and said, it's well spoken. That's an equitable arrangement. In fact, it's decidedly to our advantage. We agree. Command number three. It's found in verse 25. You go first. You choose the bullock. You dress it. You call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under it. And this they did. And all morning there is this weird dancing around the altar and we hear the monotonous chant, Oh, Baal, hear us. But I read at the end of verse 26, there was no voice nor any that answered because my Bible tells me that false gods have eyes but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. They have a mouth, but they speak not. They have hands and feet, but they do not move in response to those that call upon them. Dreadfully silent. They leap upon the altar. Then in verse 27, when the sun was at its hottest, when the God they worshipped was at his zenith, then with tones laden with sarcasm, he inserts the needle. He had a fantastic sense of humor. And with my perverted sense of humor, I identify with this like crazy. This must have been the most enjoyable part of the experience. 27, it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry louder! Don't forget, he's a god! How ridiculous can you get? If he's a god, he certainly can hear. Oh, but... Cry a little louder. The batteries on his hearing aid are dead. Or maybe he's talking. And remember, he can't listen to two people at the same time. So don't interrupt him. Or, he adds, maybe he's pursuing, and it's interesting to note that this is a word used to translate the process of a man out hunting his food. Maybe he's out collecting something to eat. Or maybe he's on a journey, he's taken a little vacation in Florida. Or, maybe he's asleep. And he's got to be awakened. And after he said this, he stirred these people into a frenzy. They cried aloud. They cut themselves. 
after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Will you mark it, my friends? If it is sincerity that saves, these people should have been saved. They were the most sincere people in all of the world, but they were sincerely wrong. They had the wrong object for their faith, and faith is always determined by its object. Suppose I have to go back to Dallas the end of this week and I decide perhaps I can get back there a little cheaper. And so I wander around looking for some unsuspecting individual and I find a guy running around loose and I say, say friend, would you fly me to Dallas? He said, Dallas, where's that? Well, it's south and a little west of here. Sure, I'll be glad to fly you. So we go out to what is supposed to be a plane. I look at it. The fuselage is held together with baling wire. It's got a half a prop. The tail assembly is missing. And I say to him, by the way, you have been up before, haven't you? He said, no. As a matter of fact, I've never been up before. But I'm fascinated by flying. Hop in. My friends, if I get into that, that is not faith. That's foolishness. Because the object of my faith is worthless. Again, I repeat, verse 29, there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. Verse 30, you have the fourth statement of Elijah, where he invites the people, come near to me. Move in a little closer. I don't want you to think there is any trickery or chicanery to my method of procedure. I want you to witness the whole thing. And he proceeds to repair the altar which had been broken down and to dig a trench. Verse 33, the fifth statement. He commands, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. I heard an individual of the liberal persuasion reciting this story, and he stopped at this juncture and said, now here is another clear-cut evidence of the inconsistency of the scriptures. They were in the midst of a prolonged drought, not enough water to feed the cattle. Men were dying for lack of moisture. And Elijah commands them to fill four barrels of water. Now where would they find that? And I thought, this man has forgotten his geography. For this mount is located beside the Mediterranean Sea. Salt water is bad news for cattle and for men, but it is exquisitely designed for dousing wood. 
And I got a life-size picture of this. I think he enjoyed this. He said, say, men, uh, run down there to the sea in four barrels. Roger. Down they go, and they come back. They douse the thing. He looks at it. I really don't think it's wet enough, men. Try it on for size again. So down they go the second time, and they come back, and they saturate it. He said, it's better, but uh, it's still not good enough. You don't mind making another trip down there, do you? So down they go again. Come back, and it's one soggy mess. And the water's all around the trench. You know, it is as if Elijah would put some obstacles in the way of God. So great is his faith. Verse 36, the sixth statement. He prays, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, note the content of his prayer. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and I have done all of these things at thy word. That sounds like 17 and verse 1. He prays that these people, like himself, might be convinced of the reality of Jehovah and that he is merely his representative. It's quite a contrast between the prayer of the false prophets. It lasted over six hours, and it does not require six minutes to read this prayer. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire fell, Consumed the burnt sacrifice, no problem here. The wood, ideal kindling, and the stones. You know, I've been camping a great deal, and I have not found stones to be good kindling. They were consumed, and the dust. When I want to put a fire out, I get a pail of dust. And it licked up or evaporated the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is in the God. In the morning, it was Baal worship that prevailed. At the end of this day, it was Jehovah worship, which was back in the ascendancy. The last, the seventh word found in verse 40. It's a drastic word. It's a sentence of judgment. Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They took them down, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Say, that's extreme, is it not? I think not. Will you remember there was a malignancy in the nation? And this had to be thoroughly excised before there would be any lasting value. 
Elijah, a spiritual surgeon, knew that like the surgeon of the body, he had to hurt in order to heal. I went to a surgeon friend of mine some time ago and said, Doc, I've got some inside information. I've got problems. He said, let's take some pictures. When I went back, he said, you got a rock collection down there. And since you're not a geologist, we're going to have to take him out. Now, he's my closest friend. But you know, he never shed a tear. He never said, Ali, I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to have to cut you. I really think he enjoyed it. He's quite a cut up. <laughs> he hurt me in order to heal me because it was a question of survival. And I think many times we look back with our perverted perspective and sit in judgment without taking into account what was the effect of sin that was not judged with severity. Now I want to underscore for your thinking Three principles which spring from this portion of the Word of God that answered the question, what kind of a man does God choose and use? In the first place, I believe he uses one who is convinced that one plus God constitutes a distinct majority. You see, divine mathematics are vastly different from human mathematics. We are so impressed by numbers, but God is not. We are so enamored of addition, God is committed to multiplication. 850 to 1? That's not the equation. It is 850 to 1 plus God. And I hasten to add the significance is not the one, but the God who controls the one. I love to study the Gospels and ask the question, how did God launch the church? It's conceivable to me that an infinite God could have used an infinite number of means. But why did he launch the church the way he did? I believe because this was to become a pattern for our ministry. When you read the Gospels, it's obvious that the paramount ministry which our Lord sustained was not a ministry to the multitudes who for the most part followed him for superficial reasons. But it was the ministry he sustained to a small band of men 
into whose lives he built with quality and spiritual impact. And when I come to the book of Acts, I read the pagan world testified of men of their ilk. These are they that have turned the world upside down. When I come to the end of the book of Acts, how appropriate on this missionary day, I discovered that church, starting with a handful of men, were further toward reaching their world for Christ than we are after these many hundreds of years with all of the methods, with all of the technological advances at our disposal. My friend, in the spiritual realm, it is never how many. It is always what kind. Wherever I go, someone says to me, Oh, Brother Hendricks, what can we do? My friends, that is never the issue. As a matter of fact, I think that is lethal. The question is not what can we do. The question is what can God do? Oh, but we're so few. And we're overwhelmed by the size of our group rather than by the size of our God. You see, the size of your God will determine the size of everything in your theology and everything in your Christian experience. Our problem is our God is too small. Size does not determine significance. One of my favorite pastimes is watching surgery. I have a friend of mine who is a surgeon specializing in microscopic surgery in the inner ear. Some time ago he said, Howie, I want you to see an operation the likes of which you have never seen. It's the most dramatic operation I have performed. They have perfected an operation today in which they keep the patient under partial anesthesia in order to determine the success of the operation. So he was looking through this microscope and I was looking through this microscope. And he said, you'll notice two bones. And he pointed them out to me. He said, they are separated and this is the reason this man does not hear, has not heard for 26 years. Now, he said, I'm coming to the place where I'm going to join these bones, and I'm deliberately going to continue to speak. And I want you to keep your eyes on his face. If the operation is successful, you'll know it immediately. So I waited with expectancy and sheer excitement. I could hardly contain myself. As finally he said, I'm coming to it now, and he joined these two bones, and he continued to talk. I watched this man's face as his eyes became like saucers. He said, well, what's that? Who's talking? Why, he said, that's me. And the tears streamed down his face. I picked up a piece of gauze and wiped them away. And a man who had not heard for 26 years, was able to hear again. 
But if you and I were going through the human body, you know, examining the component parts and came upon these two bones, if we could see them, we'd say in our lack of expertise, who needs these? They're so small. My friends, size does not determine significance. And if you're hearing what I am saying today, it's because those two little bones in your ear that some of you were never aware of in terms of existence are properly joined. And our problem is we are not properly joined to the infinite God with whom, when I am in proper relationship, I constitute a distinct majority in any situation, in any age. But I want you to note a second principle here. And that is, I believe God uses a man, as he did Elijah, who is not problem-oriented, but who is potential-oriented. Now, I'm sure he could have wrung his hands and said, things are rough. 7,000, but they're in a cave, and I'm on Carmel. What can I do? You know, wherever I go, I am interested to see how an individual will tip his hand in the first moments of conversation with me. I spend a lot of time with pastors and Christian workers. I'll get off a plane, they'll pick me up, and I'll step in the car, and the first thing they start telling me about are their problems. Oh, Brother Hendricks, I know you've been other places, but man, we've got problems here. I ask so many Christians, how are you doing? Oh, pretty well under the circumstances. Well, what in the world are you doing under there? <laughs> it's where he spends the bulk of his life. My friends, problems are circumstances to which faith has often capitulated. I ran across an interesting statement in my reading the other day, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as unsolvable problems. People come to me and ask me, Brother Hendricks, can you recommend a church? Well, I say, what kind of a church are you looking for? They give me the specifications. I say, friend, you're looking for a perfect church. And if you find it, don't join it. You'll ruin it. You see, a church that has no problems is probably paralyzed. If you're making progress for God, you've got problems. The question is, where are your eyes? Turn back with me for just a moment to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. 
You will remember the children of Israel were wending their way through the wilderness. And they came to a place called Kadesh Barnea, actually just a wide spot in the road. But they made a decision there that determined their destiny. God told them to go directly into the land. They said, let's not play the part of a fool. Let's be practical. Let's appoint a committee. So in typical committee fashion, they come back with a majority and a minority report. In verse 30, the minority reports. Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let's go up and possess it because we are well able to overcome it. If you'll look in the context, he believed they were well able because he believed God was well able. But verse 31, the majority gave their report. But the men went up with him, said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land through which they'd searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And besides, we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. If you went back to your Sunday school next week, you will discover that probably every child enrolled in that school can give you the names of the two men that brought the minority report. I defy any of you here this morning to give me one of the names of the other ten men. They are all found in the opening verses of chapter 13. But who wants to remember them? Oh, but some American says the majority's always right. Really? It's frequently flat wrong. What was the difference between these two? I believe the majority was problem-oriented. We've got giants, redwood variety, Texas size. Besides, we're just a bunch of God's grasshoppers. What was the difference in Joshua and Caleb? Did they go up and say, giants? What giants? I don't see any giants. Do you, Caleb? <laughs> and I don't think they had an inordinate view concerning themselves. I think they would have agreed. Roger, we're just a group of God's grasshoppers. The only difference is they saw more. They saw God. What do you see this morning? Oh, Brother Hendricks, you don't know our church. <gasps> Pastor said to me, Hendricks, I asked the Lord to remove a man that gave me trouble. I said, did he? He did. And he sent two other beasts out of the sea. <laughs> Terrific view of the giants, the grasshoppers but an inadequate view concerning God. When you read through the life of our Savior, you come to that statement, 
He could not do his mighty works there, namely in Nazareth, because of their unbelief. Wasn't the difficulty of the problems. It was the lack of response on the part of people to believe that he was who he claimed himself to be. The Son of God. With us, I believe faith is often figuring what God can do without embarrassment and then asking him to do it. But don't put him in a bind. Don't ask him to do the impossible. Because there are so many problems. I want you to see a third principle. I believe God uses a man who does not focus his attention upon his ability but rather upon his availability. Oh, but you say, Brother Hendricks, I don't have much. My friend, you have all that God intended you to have. Oh, but I can't do much. You can do all that God wants you to do. But if you continue to focus upon your ability or lack of it, God will never use you. I read in my Bible, it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful. Not brilliant, not gifted, not spectacular. Faithful. I may be wrong, but the longer I study the life of Elijah, the more I am convinced that what James said of him is true. He's a man of like passions. He's an ordinary man who lived an extraordinary life. That's his greatest claim to distinction. Have you ever wondered what goes through the mind of a professor before a class begins? I'll tell you, I have often sat there at my desk before the bell rings and look across that desk to see a man and say, Lord, what are you going to do with him? How will he ever make it? I remember one student I had a number of years ago. This fellow slept through most of the classes. He might as well have slept through all of them. How he graduated, I'll never know. Some of our students graduate magna cum laude, others graduate laude, how come? (laughs) He was definitely in the last classification. When he graduated, he took a church up in Canada. A church 123 years old, and at the end of 123 years' existence, it was smaller than when it was first organized. Tremendous progress. (laughs) Nineteen men in a row walked away from it as hopeless, and he took it. I thought, well, that's par for the course. He doesn't know enough not to take it. (laughs) He moved into this church, but what's more important, God moved into his life. 
and dramatic, divinely supernatural things began to happen. Wherever I go, I would hear about this man. So I travel back and forth across the country, say, you know so-and-so? Yeah, I think so. How do you spell it? <laughs> Went to Dallas. That's a man. One day he wrote me a letter. He said, hey, Prof, I understand you're coming up in our area and I'm going to be gone for a little vacation. He said, I'd love to have you preach to my people. I wrote back and said, I'd love to preach for you. I'd like to see this thing firsthand. Do you believe it, my friends? I walked into a church for a Sunday morning service, 123 years old, and on the outside there was a building program for expansion, the first building in 123 years. And when I got up to preach, the place was so crowded that I had to give my seat to a man so he could sit down while I preached. <laughs> and after I got through, one of the deacons came up. And he said, well... That's pretty good preaching, son. <laughs> and then he added, By the way, have you ever heard our preacher preach? I wouldn't dare tell him I taught him homiletics. <laughs> you know, my friends, I came back to the seminary with a new lease on life. What am I doing? Erecting a monument to mediocrity? Absolutely not. But I have been at the seminary long enough to learn that brilliance is sterile unless it's coupled with commitment. Does God use a dull tool rather than a, a sharp one? I do not think so except that oftentimes the sharp one is not available. I want to say something that I believe needs to be said in this hour. There are many of you people who are listening to me here and over the radio who have deep-seated inferiority feelings, and the devil has implanted them in your mind. Say, my, must be wonderful to be able to preach, to be able to teach in a seminary and multiply yourself. It is, my friends. But I only stand here and I only serve there for one reason, and that is God has gifted me to do that. And I would prostitute the gifts were I not to use them. I never chose these gifts. Nobody ever told me to go to a Christian bookstore and pick this one and this one and this one. God sovereignly bestowed these gifts upon me and these other men who are serving. And he sovereignly bestowed you with a gift. Don't despise the gift. Your problem is not your ability. Your problem is your availability. And there are some people who, when we get to heaven, are going to compel us, who have sustained a public 
and dramatic type of ministry to step down lower while they move up higher because it is required of a steward not that he be brilliant, not that he sustain a public ministry, but that he be faithful in the ministry to which God has called him. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message on the Old Testament prophet Elijah that Howard Hendricks presented at Founders Week 1968. Howard Hendricks was a popular pastor, author, conference speaker, and longtime professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.